Section 13 of Revelations of a Wife. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Mary Rohde. Revelations of a Wife by Adele Garrison. Chapter 13. If You Aren't Cross and Displeased. Today, my mother-in-law. That was my thought when I woke on the morning of the day which was to bring Dicky's mother to live with us. I am afraid, if I set down my exact thoughts, I should have to admit that I had a distinct feeling of rebellion against the expected visit of Dicky's mother. If it were only a visit, there was just the trouble. Then I could have welcomed my mother-in-law, entertained her royally, kept at top pitch all the time she was with us, guarded every word and action, and kept from her knowledge the fact that Dicky and I often quarreled. But Dicky's mother, as far as I could see, was to be a member of our household for the rest of her life. She herself had arranged it in a letter, the calm phrases of which still irritated me as I recalled them. She had taken me so absolutely for granted, as though my opinion amounted to nothing, and only her wishes and those of her son counted. But suddenly my cheeks flamed with shame. After all, this woman who was coming was my husband's mother, an old woman, frail, almost an invalid. I made up my mind to put away from me all the disagreeable features of her advent into my home, and to busy myself with plans for her comfort and happiness. I hurried through my breakfast, for I wanted plenty of time for the last preparations before Dicky's mother should arrive. Dicky had gone to his studio for a while, and then would go over to the station in time to meet her train, which was due at 11.30. As I started to my room, I heard the peal of the doorbell. "'I will answer it, Katie,' I called back, and went quickly to the entrance. A special delivery postman stood there holding out a letter to me. As I signed his slip, I saw that the handwriting upon the letter was Jack's. What could have happened? I dreaded inexpressibly some calamity.' Only something of the utmost importance, I knew, could have induced my brother-cousin to write to me. He was too careful of my welfare to excite Dicky's unreasoning jealousy by a letter, unless there was desperate need for it. Finally, I sat down in an armchair by the window, and, breaking seal, drew out the letter. Dear Cousin Margaret, I have decided, suddenly, to go across the pond and get in the big mix-up. You perhaps remember that I have spoken to you frequently of my friend Paul Killard, who has been with me in many a bit of ticklish work. He was with me in South America, and, like me, heard of the war for the first time when he got out of the wilderness. He is a Frenchman, you know, and is going back to offer his services to the Engineering Corps and I am going with him, Margaret. I think I can be of service over there. Paul Caillard is the best friend I have. As you know, you are the only relative I have in the world, and you are happily and safely married, so I feel that I am harming no one by my decision. 
We sail tomorrow morning on the Saturn. It will be impossible for me to come to your home before then. So this is good-bye. When I come back, if I come back, I want to meet your husband and see you in your home. And now I must speak of a little matter of which you are ignorant, but of which you must be told before I go. Before your mother died, I had made my will, leaving her everything I possessed, for you and she were all the family I had ever known. After her death I changed her name to yours. If anything should happen to me, my attorney, William Fay, 149 Broadway, will attend to everything for you. He is also my executor. Most of what I have would have come to you by law anyway, Margaret, for you are my nearest of kin. Isn't that the way the law puts it? But you might have some unpleasantness from those Pennsylvania cousins of ours, so I have protected you against such a contingency. And now, Margaret, good-bye, and God bless you. Your affectionate cousin, Jack. I finished the letter with a numb feeling at my heart. It seemed to me as if one of the foundations of my life had given away. When Jack had left me after that miserable reunion dinner, where he had been hurt so cruelly by the news of my marriage during his year's absence, he had said, Ah, how well I remember those words. I shall not see you again, dear girl, unless you need me, if you ever do. I can't be near you without loving you and hating your husband, whoever he may be, and that is a dangerous state of affairs. But wherever I am, a note or a wire to the Hotel Alfred will be forwarded to me, and if the impossible should happen, and your husband ever fail you, remember, Jack is waiting, ready to do anything for you. I had not expected to see Jack for months, perhaps years, but the knowledge of his faithfulness, of his nearness, had been of much comfort to me. And now he was going away, probably to his death. The most bitter knowledge of all was that which forced itself upon my mind. Jack was going to the war because he was unhappy over my marriage. He had not said so, of course, in the letter which he knew my husband must read, but I knew it. The remembrance of his face, his voice, when I told him of my marriage, was enough. I did not need written words to know that perhaps I was sending him to his death. I glanced at the clock, 11.15, only three-quarters of an hour till the train which was bringing my mother-in-law to our home was due. She would be in the house within three-quarters of an hour. Would I have time to dress, go after the flowers and cream we needed for luncheon, and be back in time to welcome her? Common sense whispered to omit the flowers and send Katie for the cream. But one of my faults or virtues, I never have been able to decide which, is the persistence with which I stick to a plan once I have decided upon it. I made up my mind to take a chance on getting back in time. I made my purchases, and on my way back I stepped into the corner drug store and telephoned Jack. He would not hear of my seeing him sail, and he would not promise to write me. Then there was a long silence. 
I wondered what he was debating with himself. "'I'm going to let you in on a little secret,' he said at last. "'I have provided myself with the means of knowing how you fare, and I suppose I ought to let you have the same privilege. You know Mrs. Stewart, who keeps the boarding-house where you and your mother lived so many years?' "'Oh, yes.' "'Well, she and I are going to correspond. "'Now, understand, Margaret, I am going to send no messages to you. "'I want none from you. "'Remember, you are married. "'Your husband objects to your friendship with me. "'I will do nothing underhand. "'But if anything happens to you, I shall know it through Mrs. Stewart, "'and she will always know where I am and what I am doing.' "'That is some comfort.' I returned earnestly. What time does the Saturn sail tomorrow? At ten o'clock. But, Madge, you must not come. I know, I returned meekly enough, although a daring plan was just beginning to creep into my brain. And I will say good-bye now, Jack. Good-bye, dear boy, and good luck. My voice was trembling, and there was a tremor in the deep voice that answered. "'Good-bye, dear little girl. God bless and keep you.' The next moment I was stumbling out of the booth with just one thought, to get home and bathe my eyes and pull myself together before the arrival of my mother-in-law. I was just outside the drug store and had realized that I'd left my purchases in the telephone booth when I heard my name called excitedly. From the window of a taxicab, Dicky was gesturing wildly, while beside him a stately woman sat with a bored look upon her face. My mother-in-law had arrived. "'Madge, what under the heavens is the matter?' Dicky sprang out of the taxicab, which had drawn up before the door of the drug store, and seized my arm. "'Nothing is the matter,' I said shortly. I went out to get some cream for Katie's pudding and some flowers. I stopped here in the drug store to get some of my headache tablets and left the flowers and cream. Some dust blew in my eyes. I suppose that's what makes you think I have been crying. That's you all over, Dicky grumbled. Brisk not being at home to greet mother in order to have a few flowers stuck around. Here, come on and meet mother, and I'll go in and get your flowers. He took my arm and made a step toward the taxicab. "'No, no,' I said hastily. "'I know exactly where I left them. I won't be a minute.' Luckily the flowers and cream were where I had left them. I detest the idea of arranging any part of one's toilet in public, but I did not want the critical eyes of Dicky's mother to see my reddened eyes and roughened hair, which had been slightly loosened in my hurry. There was a mirror near the telephone booth at the back of the store. I took off my fur cap, smoothed back my hair, and put on the cap again. From my purse I took a tiny powder puff and removed the traces of tears. Then I fairly snatched my parcels and hurried to the door. Dicky was just entering the store as I reached it. His face was black. I saw that he was in one of his rages. "'Look here, Madge,' he said, and he made no pretense of lowering his voice. "'Do you think my mother enjoys sitting there in that taxicab waiting for you? "'She was so fatigued by her journey 
that she didn't even want to have her baggage looked after, something unusual for her. That is the reason we got here so early, and now she is positively faint for a cup of tea, and you are fiddling around here over a lot of flowers. If he had made no reference to his mother's faintness, I should have answered him spiritedly. But I remembered my own little mother, and her longing, when fatigued, for a cup of hot tea. "'I'm awfully sorry, Dickie,' I said meekly. "'You see, you arrived before I thought you would. I'll get the tea for her the moment we reach the house.' But Dickie was not mollified. He stalked moodily ahead of me until he reached the open door of the taxicab. Then his manner underwent a sudden change. One would have thought him the most devoted of husbands to see him draw me forward. "'Mother,' he said, and my heart glowed even in its resentment at the note of pride in his voice. "'This is my wife, Madge, my mother.' Mrs. Graham was leaning back against the cushions of the taxicab. If she had not looked so white and ill, I should have resented the look of displeasure that rested upon her features." "'How do you do?' she said coldly. "'You must pardon me, I am afraid, for not saying the usual things. I have been very much upset.' The studied insolence of the apology was infinitely worse than the coldness of her manner. I waited for a moment to control myself before answering her. "'I am afraid that you are really ill,' I said as cordially as I could. I am so sorry to have kept you waiting, but I did not expect you quite so soon, and I had some errands. It doesn't matter, she said indifferently. Her manner put me aside from her consideration as if I had been a child or a servant. She turned to Dicky. Are we almost there, dear? The warmth of her tones to him, the love displayed in every inflection, set out in more bitter contrast the coldness with which she was treating me. "'Right here, now,' as the taxi drew up to the door of the apartment house, there was a peculiar inflection in Dicky's voice. I stole a glance at him. He was gazing at his mother with a puzzled look. I fancied I saw also a trace of displeasure, but it vanished in another minute as he sprang to the ground, paid the driver, and helped his mother and me out. She leaned heavily on his arm as we went up the stairs to the third floor upon which our apartment was. At the door, Katie, who evidently had heard the taxicab, stood smiling broadly. "'This is Katie, mother,' Dickie said kindly. "'She will help take care of you.' "'How do you do, Katie?' The words were the same but the tones were much kinder than her greeting to me. Dickie assisted her into the living room. She sank into the armchair, and Dickie took off her hat and loosened her cloak. She leaned her head against the back of the chair, and her face looked so drawn and white that I felt alarmed. "'Katie, prepare a cup of strong tea immediately,' I directed, and Katie vanished." "'Is there nothing I can do for you, Mrs. Graham?' I approached her chair. "'Nothing, thank you. You may save the maid the trouble of preparing that tea, if you will. I could not possibly drink it. 
I always carry my own tea with me, and prepare it myself. If it is not too much trouble, Dicky, will you get me a pot of hot water and some cream? I have everything else here. I really felt sorry for Dicky. He caught the tension in the atmosphere, and looked from his mother to me with a helpless, caught-between-two-fires expression. With masculine obtuseness, he put his foot in it in his endeavor to remedy matters. "'Why do you call my mother Mrs. Graham, Madge?' he said querulously. "'She is your mother now, as well as mine, you know.' "'I am nothing of the kind,' his mother spoke sharply. "'Of all the idiotic assumptions, that is the worst, "'that marriage makes close relatives and friends of total strangers.' Your wife and I may learn to love each other. Then there will be plenty of time for her to call me mother. As it is, I am very glad she evidently feels as I do about it. Now, Dicky, if you will kindly get me that hot water. I will attend to it, I said decidedly. Dicky, take your mother to her room and assist her with her things. I will have the hot water and cream for her almost at once. In the shelter of the dining-room, where neither Dicky nor his mother nor Katie could see or hear me, I clenched my hands and spoke aloud. "'Call her mother? Give that ill-tempered, tyrannical old woman the sacred name that means so much to me? Never, as long as I live!' Dicky met me at the door of the dining-room and took the tray I carried. It held my prettiest teapot— filled with boiling water, a tiny plate of salted crackers, together with a cup, saucer, spoon, and napkin. "'Say, sweetheart,' he whispered, "'I want to tell you something. My mother isn't always like this. She can be very sweet when she wants to, but when things don't go to suit her, she takes these awful icy dignity tantrums, and you can't touch her with a ten-foot pole until she gets over them.' She was tired from the journey, and the fact that you kept her waiting in the taxicab made her furious. But she'll get over it. Just be patient, won't you, darling? If the average husband only realized how he could play upon his wife's heartstrings with a few loving words, I believe there would be less marital unhappiness in the world. A few minutes before, I had been fiercely resentful against Dickie's mother, and my anger had reached to Dicky, for I felt in some vague way that he must be responsible for his mother's rudeness. But the knowledge that he too was used to her injustice, and that he resented it when directed against me, made all the difference in the world. I reached up my hand and patted his cheek. Dear boy, Nothing in the world matters if you aren't cross and displeased. End of chapter 13